Amen. Thank you, Miss Margie. Take your Bibles tonight and turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. So we begin looking in verse 19 and then we'll finish out that chapter tonight, Lord willing. James uh, has really trying, he's trying to flesh out for us the relationship between faith and works. Last week when Christian came and he shared with you, and very ably he shared with you, especially and you didn't know this, and I didn't know this till afterwards, that his iPad went out totally black with no outline that he had. He was trying to recall all of it from memory. Isn't that quite something? So if you see the young man, you ought to tell him that was good. But also I told him, that's the reason we don't deal with technology, all right? I don't go. I just go old school. Sorry, Andy. I just go old school, and we don't have to worry about all those things. But uh, last week, Christian tried to help us uh, think about what real faith was, and and how that faith demonstrated itself in practice. And tonight we are going to continue that conversation about real faith. And there's a difference between that which is real and that which is false, that which is deceptive. And we need to understand what James is trying to teach those who are reading here. He's trying to remind them that real faith looks a certain way and it produces certain things in life. So, He's been having this conversation. He's been trying to share specifically <coughs> that real faith is active. And real faith sees to the needs of other individuals. Look what he says in verse 19. He makes a very bold statement. He says, again, you believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Do you, want, do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? In those two verses, you have a real faith explanation. You have an explanation of what real faith looks like. I mean, just in those two verses, he talks to us about it. He says, for example, when you're thinking about faith, you need to understand that real faith is not just mental assent. It is not mental agreement. It is not even merely theological agreement. When you say that you believe something, that you uh, have had faith, that is, in Christ, you are saying more than you, than you believe that Jesus actually lived, was a historical figure, he died, he rose again. You're saying more than just what the mind is trying to assent to. It's more than an intellectual effort. It's more than just coming and saying, hey, I agree to a set theological um, credo, the set theological set of beliefs. He says it's more than that. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people today, and I, and I really believe this, there are a lot of people who have defined faith as nothing more than mental agreement or theological agreement in who Jesus is. And I'm going to tell you that I'm afraid that in many of our churches we've had that happen. What do I mean? I mean, we live in a Christian culture. Would you say that? We still do, at least in Ruston. Now, I know many would argue whether or not the Christian culture exists in the nation anymore. But in Ruston, we still live in a Christian culture. I often tell people it's kind of like a bubble here, isn't it? I kind of like it. I don't want anybody to burst mine either. But Ruston is an area where there are so many believers still. 
There are so many individuals that are affected by the Christian message. I was talking with one of my friends down in Baton Rouge just last week, and I was sharing with them specifically about college students and about the ministry that we have in college students. And I was telling them that I've never really lived in an area where I saw so much ministry among college students of the churches. I could name five, six churches here within our area that has a that they have a very vibrant college ministry. And you go, let's say, to Baton Rouge, and there are those who have college ministry, but it's nothing compared to what I have seen here. There's something about this area. There's something about the Christian message that has been promoted time and time again. There's something about the churches who have stood strong, and they have spoken the truth for many, many years. Now, I'm thankful for that. I'm grateful that we can live in that area. But this is the temptation, I think, for all of us. The temptation is for us to decide that, well, we live in a Christian culture and everybody is Christian. Everybody's okay. And even in the church life, there are many people in the church life who've assented. They've said, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus died and rose again. I believe in these theological uh, sets or these theological propositions that you've given to us. We, I believe in that. There's nothing Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But that doesn't mean that people have come to a true, genuine, authentic faith in Christ. Someone has said recently that you can be lost in Mayberry just as well as you could be Las Vegas. We need to be reminded of that. There are times when I feel like, yes, we live in Mayberry. But you don't forget that there are lost people all around us. And what's very troubling and very difficult is that too many of them think they're okay because they've been raised in a Christian culture. They think they're okay because their grandmama was a, was a believer and they believe kind of like what their grandmama does. But you can't ride your grandmother's coattails into heaven, Right? You can't. You come from a great family and a parents who taught you. That doesn't matter. You cannot substitute that faith for your genuine belief and practice in Christ. You can't just take your heritage and somehow substitute it for your personal voluntary expression of faith in Christ. He said there are a lot of people who believe. Now, this is the difference, right? There are a lot of people who believe here, but the faith has not penetrated their heart, nor their hands, nor their feet. It's just an intellectual assent. It's just a mental agreement. It may be even theological agreement. Listen to what James said. James said, you believe that's awesome. So do the demons. You know, the demons, they could tell you a lot about Jesus. The demons affirm the historicity of Jesus' existence here on this earth, his ministry, his teaching, his death, his burial, resurrection. They can, they can assent to that same thing. The demons, they probably could give some theology lessons. 
They probably could teach some things about who Jesus really is. They probably have a greater understanding of Jesus' magnificence than we do at this moment in our lives. But that does not mean that demons have a saving faith. And that's what we need to hear. Is that there is a difference between intellectual theological agreement and true real faith. In our lives. It's like I say with children a lot. Y'all have probably read uh, a tidings article I wrote. No, never mind. You probably didn't. Uh, (laughs) Don't even set myself up for that anymore. (laughs) Sally's heard me say this or so. There's a difference, for example, in a curious child and a convicted child. There's a difference in a child saying, oh, yeah, I love Jesus. And a child who experiences true conviction in their life and comes to a saving faith in him. And that's what we want to cultivate. That's what we want to cultivate within our church life. Is that real faith is commitment to Christ that results in real action. That's what James is trying to teach. That real faith, authentic, genuine faith is a belief that will penetrate not just your mind, but will penetrate your heart and, as I said, your hands and your feet. Everything will be involved. It is the idea of accepting Jesus as Lord, your faith, your belief in Him. It is a complete surrender. It is a complete uh, giving over to the Lordship of Jesus. Again, some of you probably heard me say this. Hey, I've been here four and a half years. I'm going to start repeating myself, all right? But I had a lady come to me one time when I was, we were writing the, um, the bylaws and the Constitution work down at First Baptist Zachary. When I got there, they were in the process of writing it. And let me just say to you, that is not the most fulfilling ministerial effort that I've ever done. I know it has to be done, but that is not up my alley. But I knew they were in the process of writing it. They did not have a constitution and bylaws. They found that out through some difficulties. So they were writing it. For those many years before, the good Dr. Wayne Barnes, who pastored 39 years, he was the constitution and bylaws, okay? So we were writing it. We were coming up with our uh, theological statements, presenting those. And uh, <clears throat> when I, we presented them to the church, one of the little ladies came to us. It's just a sweet, sweet little lady, wonderful little lady. She would always come uh, into church with a Bible in one hand and a stool in the other because her feet wouldn't touch the floor, and she had to put it in front of her so she could sit and, you know, and, and all that. Wonderful. I'm, I'm serious. Wonderful lady. One of the most giving individuals I've ever known and Sally, she taught, Jessica, she taught Bible drills for 1,800 years. At first, she was about the same age as Dale. Uh, there at First Baptist Zachary. She looked at me, though, and she said, um, she said, Brother Reggie, I think we have an issue here with our theological statement. And I asked her, I said, what do you mean, Miss Gail? What, what, what kind of issue do we have? And she said, well, it states here that we have to accept Jesus as uh, Lord and Savior. 
in order to become a member of this church? And I said, yes. And what, what kind of issue is there? She said, well, I just think the arrangement of that is incorrect. And I said, well, tell me what you mean by that. And she said, well, I think that it should be that we accept Jesus as Savior and Lord because we accept him as Savior first, and then we accept him as Lord. Now, that may seem logical. I mean, it does. There's a part of me that could go there with what she's saying. But then, then I stopped a minute. I said, you know what? I don't care either way, to be honest. I don't think it's an issue either way. It's Savior, Lord, Lord, and Savior. Because you know, when you accept him as your Savior, you're also accepting him as your Lord. There's not one time in your life where you say, I accept him as my Savior, but I'm going to put it off for a little while before I give myself over to his Lordship. Now, I know some of you are going to say, but uh, Brother Reg, there are times when I have yielded more of my life and I've been more completely uh, surrendered. I know God is still claiming the lordship of so many different areas and reminding me how, how I need to surrender more and yield more to him. I know that. But when you come to faith in Christ, it is not saying, yes, I just know who you are, Jesus. It's not saying, yes, I believe that you have lived and that you have died and that you've rose again. It's not just saying, I agree with certain theological presupposition. It is saying to him that he is the Lord of all the universe and that you are committing your life to him completely, that you are surrendering yourself. You're selling yourself out for him and who he is. The earliest confession of faith, listen to me, the earliest confession of faith Christians had to make was Jesus is Lord. Before they were baptized, before they were, in, they were entering into the church, they had to make a declaration, Jesus is Lord. And that meant that they were surrendering themselves. And that's what James is saying here. James says real faith is a total commitment and total surrender to God. It is not just intellectual assent. It is not just theological agreement. It is you giving yourself completely and wholly to the Lord Jesus. And then you see it act out in your life because real faith is a commitment to Christ that results in real action. He's already said that to us, right? Christian talked to us last week about helping individuals. Verse 20 had said, O foolish man, faith without works is dead. And earlier he had given that example. He had said, you know, you got somebody come to you in need. Let's say you're at a Sunday school party. Somebody comes up to you and you know that they're struggling financially. And they said, man, <laughs> I'm trying to get this tire fixed on my car so I can get to work tomorrow. Uh, I'm trying to to be able to do what I need to, I'm, I'm trying to work that out. And you say to them, oh man, that sounds rough. I'll pray for you. I'll pray God will send somebody. That God would just provide the resources. Let me see if I can say this without insulting us here in this place. You imbecile, God is talking to you and he's trying to provide. You are the one who has the, you have the resources. You're saying, I'm going to pray God would send that. You have it. You know you do. If so, step up. Oh, let me say this. I'm not re-preaching Christian stuff, but let me say this. Because I think this needs to be said. 
when we talk about helping individuals, you don't forget that you and I are the church. Sometimes we say, oh, we wish the church would do more. You know, the church ought to provide funds. And I totally agree in what we budget and what we do. We need to be very gracious in our giving. Totally agree with you. But we shouldn't always look at just what's going on in this office. This office doesn't move into the community each week. This office does not go across this parish nor this state. But you do because you are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If somebody needs help, we don't wait on the office to open. We do what we need to do because we represent the church. And we demonstrate the faith that we have in Christ as we help other individuals. Let me move on. I'm going to start preaching. Two faith examples, two real faith examples. He gives us a real faith explanation, and then he gives us two real faith examples. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Not surprised that James, writing to individuals that come from a predominantly Jewish background, that he would refer to Abraham, the father of the nation. And he says, let me give you an example of real faith. Example of real faith, Abraham. Now, before we look at Abraham's faith, maybe I need to address this issue in verse 21 because it says that he was justified by works. Now, you and I, were lit, we were raised probably in traditions that pushed against the idea of works-oriented salvation. It is through faith alone. It is by grace. How many times have you heard that preached? So when you read through that, some of us will have a natural aversion to what James says. Some of us will say, whoa, hold on just a minute. James, that sounds wrong. Martin Luther believed that James had crossed the line and he dismissed this book because of what James was claiming here. But James was not contradicting other apostles. He was not contradicting Jesus himself. Chuck Swindoll gives a great little diagram. You wished I could show it to you tonight. You want to see it? I got some notes, all right? You may not can read it, but I'll show it to you afterwards. But basically it's entitled Paul and James, Two Sides of the Same Coin. For example, Paul says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law, Romans 3.28. James says here in chapter 2, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That seems contradictory. I don't believe that God's word ever contradicts itself. God's word is always complementary. So what does it mean? Well, Paul uses justified to mean pronounced righteousness in the sight of God. Pronounced righteousness. That we are pronounced righteous before him. That we are not guilty before holy God. We've been justified. But James uses justified to mean, quote, proved righteous in the sight of others. He's trying to say that this is what faith really looks like. We're justified in the sight of others by demonstrating works in our lives. Paul shows us how an unbeliever becomes a Christian when you look in the book of Romans. 
James shows more here of how a believer lives as a Christian. Paul emphasizes the root of salvation. James emphasizes the fruit of salvation. Paul stresses the inward disposition. James, the outward actions. Paul demonstrates God's part with human participation, whereas James demonstrates human, the human part with God's help. What I'm saying to you is understand the context and what each one is trying to do. James is not denying the role of faith in a person's life. What he's saying is that real genuine faith demonstrates action. And he says that's Abraham's example. That, that true faith was shown in action. Again, look at this again. It says that Abraham was justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith is made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of of God, And this again that I read a moment ago, verse 24, that you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. He's just saying again, it is the real genuine faith that produces the works in that true type of salvation. Hebrews. Hebrews also talked about the faith of Abraham. Remember the hall of faith? What chapter? Hebrews chapter 11. The hall of fame, the hall of faith. And it says this, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it is said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. What he says is, is that, God, that Abraham heard God. God said, go sacrifice your only son. And again, if you were to go back and look at the Old Testament, the scripture teaches us that Abraham got up and he went. Actually, it says he got up early the next morning. And he set out to be obedient. And he went. He placed Isaac there on the altar. He was preparing himself. That seems so strange to us. So unacceptable to us. But Abraham was being obedient to the call. And he had faith and trust. And that faith demonstrated action. And that faith... And the promise would continue. Oh, in Hebrews 11, I didn't read this a moment ago. In verse 19, it says that Abraham concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. It's one of the most extraordinary passages in all of Scripture, by the way. Hebrews 11, 19. Because even before Jesus' resurrection, Abraham had faith in the resurrection. Listen to what that says. Abraham knew that Isaac was the promised child. He believed him. He believed what God said. Isaac was the one. So get this. He says, if God calls me to kill him and I'm going to offer him here on this altar, that means God is going to still be faithful to make him the only one, the son, the one from which the rest of my descendants will come. So that means that God's going to have to bring him back from the dead. Is that not extraordinary? That Abraham would have that type of faith in what God said? He's the promised one. If he dies, he's got to come back. But when he walked up that hill, 
when he prepared the altar, that all demonstrated the true faith. Because actions demonstrate faith. Well, you're not surprised, or I'm not, that James would use Abraham, the father of the nation. But then all of a sudden, James throws you a curve. Or he threw me one. Verse 25. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Rahab! James. There are so many other Old Testament characters you could have used. You picked out Rahab? Well... In the Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11, and there are a lot of Old Testament characters that are listed there. But did you know the writer of Hebrews commended the faith of Rahab as well? Hebrews 11, verse 31, by faith the harlot Rahab. She always has to have that descriptor, doesn't she? The prostitute, Rahab, did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Abraham, Rahab, polar opposites. The founder of the nation. The prostitute from Jericho. The one who gave life to a people. One who was outside of the Israelite congregation. James used polar opposites. He commended Rahab. <laughs> For her faith and how she trusted that the local deities of Jericho were nothing compared to the one true God of Israel. And how she received the spies and she allowed them to pass safely. She asked for mercy and grace after the victory. She knew that Yahweh would deliver the people of Israel. And she demonstrated that faith by hope aiding the spies. This reminds me, by the way, it doesn't matter if you count yourself an Abraham or you count yourself a Rahab. Real faith only comes in the, through, uh, to us in the same way through Jesus himself. Through our commitment and surrender. Oh, I didn't mention this, but Rahab is one of four women who are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, 1 of 4. God brought her into the kingdom and actually allowed her to be part of the family of Christ because of real faith. Real faith. It doesn't matter whether you're Abraham or Rahab. Real faith is what saves. And then he completes this. And James, as he gives us the wrap-up of chapter 2 as we know it, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. He said, think about it this way. He said, when the spirit leaves the physical body, the physical body has no life. It is inanimate. Cannot move, cannot function. The spirit is gone. He said, the same is 
faith when you try to separate it from works. That faith is dead. You can't have such a separation and expect it to be real. Real faith. Do you have it? I pray to God you do. Real faith. Is it exemplified each day? Is it played out in your life? Can you cite the fruit, the evidence of the faith that you've had in Christ? Because for those that would claim to have faith and have not works, it is a fraudulent statement. It is a statement divorced from reality. It is a statement that unfortunately can lead to eternal consequences. Real faith. That's what God calls us to have. And He wants us to demonstrate it daily in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we all recognize we're not where we need to be. But thanks be to you that you loved us not to leave us where we are. And Father, as you've spoken to us, you've given us the opportunity to demonstrate authentic, genuine trust and faith in you, to surrender our lives, to recognize that you are Lord. And Father, I pray that tonight we, first of all, we've settled this issue and that Lord, we've recognized that faith is not just mental assent or theological agreement. It is a personal relationship with you. Challenge us in this place. And God, may we demonstrate your works and your fruits each day as we live for you. Empower us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?